Welcome to Real Issues, Real Conversations, a podcast of Ohio Humanities. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and today's podcast is one of the special episodes that we're publishing during 2020 to mark 100 years of women's suffrage in the United States. The 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote, was ratified on the 18th of August of 1920. Barbara Palmer is my guest today, and we're recording this interview on the 11th of October of 2019. Barbara, or Barb, Palmer is a professor of political science at Baldwin Wallace University, which is where she's joining us from. She's going to be talking about the history of women running for public office, both within the state of Ohio and more generally. Barb Palmer, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Can I start by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. As you mentioned, I'm a professor of political science at Baldwin-Wallace University, which is a small private liberal arts institution just outside of Cleveland, Ohio. And um, about five or six years ago, I started the Center for uh, Women in Politics of Ohio because I was really interested in exploring the history of women running for public office in the state. Um, for about 20 years, I had been doing research on women running for Congress and just discovered all kinds of things that I n- never dreamed of and started doing research on the state level. And again, it's just been one of those things where you just you think you're never going to find anything that's new or interesting and you just constantly do. I also serve as the pre-law advisor for the campus, and I'm the director of legal studies. And so I teach classes on women in law and constitutional law and civil rights and civil liberties. I'm curious, did you come from a very politically active family? What stoked your interest in politics? Yeah, this is all my mother's fault. Um, <laughs> so when uh, my earliest memories are of my mother taking me to League of Women Voters meetings back in the 70s. And even as a little kid, you know, I would get so excited when all of the women would come over to my parents' house and the coffee percolator would be going and you could smell that. And, you know, back in the day, everybody smoked. And you know, they had this mimeograph machine with the purple drum that just made you super high off the fumes. Um, But even back then as a child, I could tell that these women were movers and shakers, like something exciting was happening. And so, yeah, I think she just brainwashed me. So I've been interested in women's rights and women in politics ever since then. You said you um, founded this Center for Women in Politics in Ohio. Do women in Ohio have a particular place in the political history of the United States? I think so. I mean, we have a lot of famous firsts that have come from Ohio, both for the state and at the national level. In fact, the very first woman to ever run for president, a lot of people are very surprised to hear that this actually happened in 1872. Um, a woman by the name of Victoria Woodhull ran for president, and she was born and raised in Ohio. She's just this amazing historical figure. And she was the very first woman to ever open a bank on Wall Street and was a stockbroker. She ran her own weekly newspaper. And she was very actively involved in the suffrage movement. She was actually the very first woman to ever testify before a congressional committee on Capitol Hill. Uh, She worked with Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, and was a widely known public speaker on women's rights and women's financial independence and sexual freedom, which made her incredibly controversial. She got married at a very young age to someone who um, emotionally abused her and uh, also physically 
physically abused her. And as a result of that, she was very critical of marriage. And as you can imagine, back in the day, that was not a particularly popular position to take. Um, She was famously quoted as saying, at least prostitutes get paid. So she was an advocate of what was called free love back then. And this made her incredibly controversial. She also felt women should have access to contraception and abortion and all of these kinds of things. So on election day back in 1872, she had proclaimed she was running for president. Unfortunately, as far as we know, we can't find any historical records that she was actually on the ballot anywhere. And technically, she was ineligible to run because she was under the required age. And on election day, she was actually in jail. Uh, She had been arrested for distributing, quote unquote, obscene materials through the mail. Uh, She had a story in her newspaper that exposed the infidelity of a very famous preacher, a guy by the name of Ward Beecher, who is Harriet Beecher Stowe's brother. She had exposed this extramarital affair that he was having and gave all kinds of salacious details in her newspaper. And the powers that be didn't like that. So they arrested her under the Comstock Act which prohibited the sending of obscene materials through the mail, and they threw her in jail. What kind of background did this woman come from? You said she opened a bank on Wall Street. Was she from a wealthy background? Was that part of what gave her her confidence, do you think? No. In fact, she came from a very poor background. She had multiple brothers and sisters, and they lived next door to some family members, and there were 14 kids in that family, and they all kind of lived together. Her father was kind of a flim-flam artist. Uh, They were very poor, and in fact, her parents were very abusive towards her and her sister. Um, She had a sister that she was very close to, and at a very young age, you know, they were in charge of taking care of all the kids. And Victoria felt that she had this this really interesting ability to be able to communicate with those who had passed on. And she would have seizures and visions throughout her life, and her sister did as well. So her parents saw this as a way that they could make money off of the kids. And so they would put the kids in the wagon, they'd drive around the county and around the state and sell the children's services to help other people communicate with the dead, which back then was actually not considered strange. A lot of people really believed that you could do that. Right. Then you said she married young and it wasn't a good experience. So I'm just trying to work out how this woman came to be such a figure. I mean, that's quite an incredible uh, life story. I think she just had one of those spirits that couldn't be put down. Like she realized at a very young age that she was going to have to be independent. And if she wanted to pull herself out of these circumstances, that she was just going to have to do it on her own. You said uh, that she was in jail at the time of her presidential bid. Was she being very serious with the or was she more just making a point? You know, that's a good question. I think mostly she wanted to make a point because she never actually got on the ballot anywhere. But it was all part of this move to, you know, improve women's rights and women's legal status and to show the absurdity of not allowing women to vote. I can give you another example, not related to Ohio, but I think really interesting. Um, This is something that I never knew and I was kind of shocked. But the very first woman to ever run for Congress was a name that everybody knows. It was Elizabeth Cady Stanton. She ran in 1866. Um, She ran for U.S. House in New York, and she was on the ballot, and we know she got 24 votes. She joked that they were all of her family members and extended cousins. And of course, Elizabeth Cady Stanton is very well known by most Americans for her work on women's suffrage and other women's rights, but nobody knows that she ran for Congress. And her own autobiography says almost nothing about her run for Congress. But we do know that it was a big 
part of her plan. And she wanted to show how crazy it was that she could run for Congress, but she couldn't vote for herself. And so that was very clearly the point that she wanted to make. Going back to Victoria Woodhull, what was the general reaction to her like in the media? That's really interesting. She obviously had a lot of supporters, but given her positions on things like free love and how anti-marriage she was um, and a lot of other controversial positions that she took, she was just pilloried in the media. In fact, she was dubbed Mrs. Satan by one of the more prominent newspapers, and there were all kinds of interesting political cartoons of her. So yeah, she was completely lampooned by the press of the day. You don't remember any of those cartoons, do you? Could you describe one? Oh, well, the one portraying her as Mrs. Satan is this, um, it's black and white, and she's dressed all in black in this flowing gown, and she has these huge black wings attached to her back, and it's this very dire picture of her just in this very dramatic flowing black dress. This is a salacious question, but does she practice free love herself? That's a really good question. I don't remember. She did divorce her husband, which was extraordinarily controversial. And she had to get permission from the state legislature in order to get divorced. You know, there's a wonderful, wonderful um, biography of her by Barbara Goldsmith. And I think it's called Other Powers. Uh, A friend of mine gave it to me for my birthday. And it was this huge 800 page book. And I thought, oh, I don't want to read this. And I put it off and put it off. And I read it in three days. I couldn't put it down. It was just it was absolutely fascinating. Right. I'm going to have to add that to my list. So who would you say was the next female political force in Ohio that really stands out in the history? I would say that it would be Florence Allen. This is someone who was highly educated for women of her time. And so she got her degree in political science and constitutional law at Western Reserve University. She got a master's degree in 1908 and a law degree from New York University in 1913. And after that, she came back to Cleveland, and she was admitted to the Ohio Bar and established her own law practice. And it was incredibly unusual for women to even be lawyers during this time period. But she was very dedicated to helping women and end discrimination against women as part of her practice. And because she was so well-respected, she was appointed Assistant Prosecutor of Cuyahoga County in 1919. The following year in 1920, uh, with women voting for the very first time, she was elected as the very first female judge of the Cuyahoga County Court of Common Pleas. Uh, But she didn't stop there. In 1922, she won a seat on the Ohio Supreme Court. So not only was she the first woman to serve on Ohio's highest court, she was also the first woman to ever serve on any state Supreme Court in the entire country. And she continued to serve as a justice on the Ohio court until 1934. And President Franklin D. Roosevelt appointed her to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals for the United States, making her the very first female federal judge. Oh, wow. So you said she was widely respected even before she got elected to any of the state roles. Do you know what about her appeal to the populace? Um, I think she was just known as an incredibly fair judge who did her homework. It's also interesting to note that during this time period that Florence Allen was first getting elected in the state court system, um, this is when we start to see women get elected to the state legislature as well. So in 1922, we see the very first woman being elected to the state house and the state senate. Uh, Believe it or not, there were 14 women who ran in 1922 and six of them won. And so, you know, we suddenly saw this huge surge after having no women at all. 
we saw, you know, quite a few women throw their hat in the ring to um, get themselves a seat in the state legislature. And did these the presence of these women new to the state legislature have a, an impact on the kinds of laws that were being passed, do you think? Yes, I do think so. We know that these women um, did sponsor legislation that directly affected the quality of life for women and children in particular. Um, these women were concerned with education and child welfare and cleaning up the workplace and all of those kinds of things. So we know that they sponsored those kinds of bills. Do we know who voted for them? Was it primarily women or was it across the board? You know, that's a fascinating question. And I've tried really hard to do some research on that. But here's the thing, especially in the wake of the passage of the 19th Amendment, so many people ask, well, what difference does it make? Did women actually show up to vote? And did they vote any differently than, you know, their husbands or their fathers? And it's a really hard question to answer because we have secret ballots in this country. And so, you know, when women went to vote in 1920 for the first time, it's it's not like they had a ballot stamped, you know, female vote. And so they're all secret. And so it's really hard to know what the exact impact was. The sort of conventional wisdom is that, you know, after the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920, that voter turnout actually declined. And I always thought that was sort of strange. And so it, what I think it comes back to is how you calculate voter turnout. Turnout is a percentage of the eligible population to vote. You know, you have a numerator and a denominator to calculate a percentage. So, of course, in 1920, that denominator goes way up because you've increased the number of people who are eligible to vote. And so when you're calculating a percentage, it might look like the proportion of people who showed up to vote maybe went down a little, but the number of people who voted went way up. So that combined with the fact that we don't have ballots stamped male and female, it's really difficult to measure. But I did some digging around and I found some really, really interesting numbers. Because um, we do have great uh, data on the number of people who voted for governor in the state of Ohio. And if you go back and compare 1916 and 1918 to 1920, 22, and 24, there are some really interesting differences. Uh, back then, governors only served two-year terms in Ohio. Today, they serve four-year terms. But back then, they were elected every two years. And when you look at 1916 and 1918, about a million votes total were cast in each of those years for governor. In 1920, which is the first year that women were enfranchised, that number doubles and stays consistently higher after that. And so there clearly was an impact. You cannot explain that huge increase without being able to attribute it to women showing up to vote. I mean, it went from 960,000 people voting in 1918 to over 2 million people casting a vote in the state of Ohio in 1920. And what's even more remarkable about that is the 19th Amendment was added to the Constitution in August of 1920. So just a couple of months before the election, and you see this huge surge in turnout. So they all got registered in a really short time. Is that right? Exactly. Yes. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's attributable to organizations like the League of Women Voters and other women's groups that really went out there and did everything they possibly could to help women register to vote and show up and vote on election day. 
So I think in 1940, we get the first woman elected to the US Congress from Ohio. Where was this in the kind of like um, United States pattern? Had other women been elected by that stage? Yes. In fact, the very first woman to ever be elected to the U.S. House was in 1916. Um, it was a woman by the name of Jeanette Rankins. She was the very first. And she was relatively young. She was only 36 years old, but she was very active in the suffrage movement herself. And she worked really hard to get women the vote in Montana, her home state, in 1914. She had a degree in social work and was very involved as a peace activist. And one day her, you know, after the Montana legislature granted women the vote, her brother told her, hey, you should run for public office. And so she did in 1916. And she won. So on the day of her swearing in, in the U.S. House chamber, when her name was called, her colleagues actually gave her a standing ovation. So interestingly, she actually did not encounter a whole lot of pushback or discrimination from her male colleagues in the U.S. House. They were actually quite welcoming to her. However, the press was a very different story. Um, so some things never change. Um, the press, the only thing they cared to talk about her when they talked about her, you know, in the headlines was what she was wearing. So women still to this day complain about media coverage and how the media only cares about three things, hair, husbands and hemlines. And Jeanette Rankin, I think would agree with that. However, on the day of her swearing in, Ironically enough, uh, later that day, she had to vote on whether or not the United States should enter World War I. And she voted no with 49 other House members. But that vote basically cost her her political career. Um, it was extraordinarily difficult for her to get reelected. She actually tried to run for Senate in 1918 and lost. But she continued to be very active in politics. She was still a big part of the peace movement. She was very concerned about the United States becoming involved in World War I um, and continued her activism and to be active in politics. And she ran again in 1940. And in 1941, she had to vote on whether or not the United States should enter World War II. She was the only no vote that time. And again, she knew that that vote was it. And she chose not to run in 1942. But again, she remained active in politics. When she was well into her 80s, she organized large protests of the Vietnam War. And she ran again for Congress in 1972. And unfortunately, she passed away. So just this incredible career. I mean, you can't make this stuff up, but just a really inspirational story. And, you know, she stuck to her values, even though it cost her politically. She's just a really inspirational figure. That's extraordinary. The length of her career from 1916 to 72 is incredible. Yeah. So on the Center for Women and Politics of Ohio's homepage, there's a whole list of women who are noted as first within Ohio. For example, in 1979, we have Helen Rankin, the first African-American woman in the state legislature. 1999, Nancy Hollister is the first female governor, although she didn't serve for very long, did she? No. And technically, Ohio has never actually elected a woman for governor. And in fact, we've only elected 10 women to our statewide offices in the history of the state. And so we have five constitutionally mandated offices that are statewide, like uh, Attorney General, Secretary of State, those kinds of things. And in the history of the state, there have only been 10 women who have held those offices. Right now, currently, uh, no women hold any of those five offices. Um, so that's kind of the broader context that we're looking at here. And just as a reminder to our listeners, we're recording this interview in October of 2019. 
But yeah, Nancy Hollister was an interesting story. And in the 1970s, she served on the Marietta City Council, and she was the city's first female mayor in 1983. In 1994, she became the state's first female lieutenant governor, which is kind of like the running mate for the governor in our state. They run as a pair. And she was the running mate of George Voinovich, who's a very famous Ohio politician. And in 1998, Voinovich decided to run for U.S. Senate. He won. And then he had to resign technically before his term ended so he could take his Senate seat. So he resigns as governor on December 31st. Hollister, because she was lieutenant governor, moves into the governor's position until the newly elected Republican governor, Bob Taft, is sworn in on January 11th. So she filled that gap between the two governors. I see, because I was looking at this thinking, 11 days, something must have gone horribly wrong. But it's not that, it's just the circumstance. No, something went horribly right for George Winovich. So... (laughs) It says here on the website homepage again, 27% of Ohio state legislature is female, but over half of the population is female. And you've just said that there's only been 10 women elected to statewide office. Although at the beginning of our conversation, Ohio seemed to be blazing a trail. So what's happened that we, we don't have more women in political office? That is the million dollar question that I have been trying to figure out. I think you're absolutely right. You know, 100 years ago, Ohio was, I would argue, blazing a trail in so many ways. And since then, not so much. Ohio currently ranks 30th in the proportion of women that it has in its state legislature. Um, It has been higher than that in the past, but we're actually falling in the rankings. And so we're seeing other states consistently increase the number of women they have in their state legislature. And that's just not happening here in Ohio. So I think it could be any number of things. We have term limits in Ohio for our state legislators. So members of our state house serve two-year terms, but they are limited to four terms. Our state Senate has four-year terms, and they're limited to two terms. So basically, you can serve for eight years in one of the chambers, and then you're out. And a lot of people thought, oh, this is going to create so many new opportunities for female candidates because you're increasing turnover, you're breaking the power of incumbency, you know, people who run again and again and again have a lot of advantages, and this is going to create tons of opportunities for new people and especially for women. And it turns out it hasn't. And in fact, if anything, it might even have been making it a little bit harder. So we don't quite understand the nature of those dynamics at this point. But I think another reason is gerrymandering. Um, you know, the manipulation of district lines to advantage one party or another. We know that Ohio is one of the most gerrymandered states in the nation, both for its U.S. House districts, but also for the state legislature. And I think this poses some particular challenges for female candidates. Um, and I can give you some examples from our congressional delegation. So Ohio has 16 seats in the U.S. House. And this year, we had a record number of women run in primaries for U.S. House seats. And we had a record number of women who won their primaries for these U.S. House seats. However, we had no gain in the number of women who won in the general election. Prior to 2018, four of the 16 were female. And in spite of the fact that we had tons and tons of women running, none of the women who were running against incumbents or in open seats won. Only the four female incumbents won. 
And it was a foregone conclusion in all of the other seats because of gerrymandering. These districts are drawn so well that you can predict who is going to win. Um, and so all of the incum- pretty much all of the incumbents kept their seats. I don't know an awful lot about gerrymandering, but it doesn't sound like the gerrymandering is happening specifically to prevent women taking office. So what's going on there? You're absolutely right. Are these district lines drawn with a specific purpose of keeping women out? No. Is that an unintended consequence? Yes. These district lines are drawn to whatever party is in control of the process is going to draw the lines to advantage their party. So, you know, Democrats who control the legislature in a state like Illinois are going to draw the lines to benefit Democrats. As it turns out, in Ohio, Republicans control the process. And so they're going to draw lines to benefit the Republican Party. And they've been very, very good at it. Um, and so the way this affects women in this indirect way is that women are more likely to run as Democrats, which is true not just in Ohio, but nationally. So that's part of it. And so the impact of all of this on the success of women is also related to partisanship and party polarization in this country. When you look at the number of women in the Ohio State Legislature and in the U.S. Congress, the women are overwhelmingly Democrats. That's a problem. When you combine that with extreme gerrymand- Republican gerrymandering in Ohio, this affects the number of women who are able to be successful. Hmm. Okay. When women are taking office and have some kind of political power, what kind of influence are you seeing on the general political landscape? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. People say, what, you know, does this matter? Does it make any difference? And what we do know is this when you look at the voting records of the women in Congress or the women in the Ohio legislature, they're very similar to their male colleagues. In other words, if you elect a man from a district with a particular profile, and then he establishes a voting record, and then let's say he retires and is followed by a woman her voting record will be almost identical to the man that she followed, which we would expect because they're representing the same district. So if you just simply look at their votes, you can say, eh, it doesn't matter. However, if you look at the agenda and the issues that women bring to the table, that's where we see things change. So for example, in 1992, we saw a huge jump in the number of women serving in the U.S. Congress. 1992 was the original, quote unquote, year of the woman. We've had a couple since then. 2018 was another one. But in 1992, we had this dramatic surge of women in both the Senate and the House. And the very first piece of legislation that passed was the Family and Medical Leave Act. That was the very first bill that Bill Clinton signed in 1993. Now, that legislation had been bouncing around Congress for years, but it took a critical mass of women to say, hey, we're going to make this a priority and we're going to pass this. And it's not that men are against those kinds of things, but it's just not on their radar. And so women bring different experiences and different priorities. And that's true regardless of whether or not they're Democrats or Republicans. In addition to that, we know that women tend to be willing to be more collaborative and willing to compromise and willing to reach across the aisle when they're in a situation and an institution that allows them to do this. I love comparing the U.S. Senate to the U.S. House in this regard. 
The women in the U.S. Senate, they started this back in the 90s. They all get together and have dinner together once a month. And it's all of them together, Republicans and Democrats. And they've been doing this for decades. And it's really important to them. They mentor the newer senators. They um, talk about issues and things that they want to do together and accomplish together. And we know that during the latest shutdown, it was the women of the Senate who were like, all right, guys, we're done. We're fixing this. We are reopening. Here's the budget compromise we're going to come up with. We're doing this. Because it was the women who were willing to work together in a bipartisan way to come up with solutions. Now, the U.S. Senate is an institution that allows that to happen because the rules of the Senate are such that you need the support many times of the minority party in order to get stuff done. In the U.S. House, that's not the case. The rules of the U.S. House are such that whatever the majority party wants, the majority party gets. And so you don't see as much collaboration and reaching across the aisle among the women in the U.S. House because the institution just doesn't reward you for that. So it's this combination of gender and institutional rules that you have to keep in mind when you're trying to understand the impact of having more women. It's not just the people, but it's the institutional rules that set up a system within which they have to operate. So there are far fewer women in public office than there are men. Is that because women are not running for public office or is it because they're not getting voted in, do you think? I think it's because they're not running. We do know that gerrymandering aside, all things being equal, when women run, they win at the exact same rates as men. However, women aren't running. And there's fantastic research out there that shows us why this this is happening. And I mean, and I hate to say this, but I think sometimes women are their own worst enemies. Women are far more likely to think they're not qualified to run for office than men. It seems like men just wake up and decide, oh, I think I'm going to run for president. And they do. And women don't do that. Women are, you know, will hem and haw and they'll just think, oh, you know, I just raised $500,000 for the local hospital, but I could never raise money for myself without realizing that it's the exact same skills. And we have to change that. I'm originally from Minnesota and I've gotten to know the woman who represented the district I grew up in. I got to know her really well. And she got tired of being one of the few women in the Minnesota legislature. So she decided to do candidate recruitment. Um, This was about 20 years ago. She decided she was going to be in charge of candidate recruitment for the party. And she told the party leaders, I'm going to make it a priority to recruit female candidates. I'm going to recruit a woman for every open seat that we have. And at first they kind of laughed at her. They're like, yeah, sure, go for it. You know, just not thinking she'd be able to do it. And she did. She made a point and managed to find fantastically qualified women to run in all of the open legislative seats that cycle. But she said it was incredibly hard. Um, You know, she would approach these amazing women and they were either like, oh, I'm not qualified or, oh, I have children or I just have too much going on. You know, I don't know how to fundraise. I don't want to fundraise. And she would have to ask a woman five or six times, you know, before she would be willing to say yes. In the meantime, there were already five guys on the ballot. And so she said it was really difficult to convince women that they should run. So related to this issue, I gather that you're one of the founders of Running Start. Can you tell me a little bit about that? 
Yes. So this is a nonprofit organization in Washington, D.C. that we created with the sole purpose of giving some political education to young women, women who were of high school age. And the reason we decided to create this organization was a bunch of us had founded another organization prior to that called Women Under 40 Pack or Woof Pack. And we were a bipartisan pack that raised money to give to women under 40 who were running for Congress. And one year, there weren't any. (laughs) There were no women under 40 running for Congress. And we thought, oh my gosh, this is terrible. What can we do to change this? And so that's how Running Start was born. It was an organization where we were going to go out and talk to women at a very young age and start telling them that they were qualified and that they should be running for office. Right. I've just been looking through the website. It says that Running Start is a nonpartisan nonprofit that trains young women to run for public office. And then it offers all of these programs. And then there's a whole section on success stories, including having just had an alumna elected to Congress for the first time. She's called Lauren Underwood and she serves Illinois' 14th Congressional District. And I'm reading that she's the first woman, the first person of colour and the first millennial to represent her community in Congress. And she's also the youngest African-American woman to serve in the House of Representatives. That's absolutely fantastic. Yes, it is. Yeah. So with all your knowledge about women in politics, was the outcome of the 2016 election a surprise to you? Yes and no. Hillary Clinton is one of those figures in American politics that, you know, for those of us who study women in politics is very difficult to deal with because it's so hard to know and be able to separate what happened. Is it unique to Hillary Clinton or is it because she was a woman? And it's really, really hard to tease those things out. One of the things that I was so frustrated by was I think she ran a terrible campaign. I think she assumed that given she was running against Donald Trump, I think she assumed she had it in the bag. She didn't have a particularly good message. He did, whether you like it or not. Everybody remembers, make America great again. He was just far more effective at campaigning than she was. And we learned this back in 2008. She had the exact same problem. She assumed that she was going to be the Democratic nominee, And then out of nowhere comes Barack Obama, who had a fantastic message, who was good on camera, who could just bring a crowd to ecstatic heights. And she could do none of those things. And her campaign in 2008 was basically run in total panic mode. And unfortunately, I don't know that she learned a whole lot from that when she ran in 2016. Plus, people just have very strong feelings about Hillary Clinton. You either love her or you hate her. That combined with the outright misogyny in the media, particularly social media, it's really difficult to tease out like how much of her problem was because she was Hillary Clinton and how much of her problem was because she was the first woman to run. It's really difficult to know. As you can hear, I'm British and I have never really understood why Hillary Clinton is such a polarizing figure. Can you in a nutshell explain that to me? Um, I, yeah, (laughs) I've, I've, I've never really understood it either. I think because she's been such a fixture in American politics for such a long time, I think it goes back to the 1992 election, you know, when her husband was first running for president and he called her a co-equal partner in his presidency. 
And a lot of people didn't like that. Then he put her in charge of healthcare and healthcare policy. A lot of people forget that all of the uproar over the Affordable Care Act, which was passed in 2010, which was Obama's signature legislation. You know, before that, back in 1993 and 94, we also had a big debate over health care in this country. And one of the things that Hillary Clinton did while her husband was president is like she was in charge of the task force that was supposed to be exploring ways to reform health care in this country. And a lot of people thought that that was her really just overstepping her boundaries as first lady, which meant that she was overstepping her boundaries as a woman. And I think that turned off a lot of people. Right. Because when it came up to the election, it just seemed to be all about emails read at home. And I couldn't just like could not work out why this was such an issue. (laughs) Yeah. And that's why I think she's so fascinating and is such an important figure in American politics is this goes way back. She's been around for a really long time. And and any candidate who's been around for that long is going to have a lot of baggage. Right. So in a lot of sectors of society, say the workplace or in academia, when women are at a disadvantage within the institution, we find that women of color are at that much more of a disadvantage. Is this the same in the political arena? I think so. Although we are seeing a lot of improvement really quickly, um, we have the most diverse Congress in history right now. And the women are among some of the most diverse in Congress. We had the first Native Americans elected to Congress. We had an increase in Hispanic women, an increase in African American women. And so as we see the number of women increase in Congress, we're also seeing an increase in the diversity in Congress. So things are changing and I think they're changing fast. Well, that's great. So if we have any female listeners who are thinking about running for office or listeners who know of women whom they think should run for office, what advice would you give them? First and foremost, tell them they should run. Hound them. Don't let them say no. I mean, it's literally as simple as that. And once they make that choice, there are all kinds of organizations out there specifically set up to help female candidates. Here within Ohio, we have the Matriots, which is a nonpartisan organization. And their goal is to dramatically increase the number of women running in Ohio. And so we can reach parity a lot faster than if we just sort of leave this to chance. Both the Democratic and Republican parties in Ohio have programs to help train female candidates. There's the Harvard Campaign School for Women. There's New Leadership. There's Emerge, which is a Democratic program. There's so many resources out there that want to help female candidates. Um, But none of that matters if you don't convince a woman that she has to run. That's excellent information. Thank you. So we're coming to the end of our conversation. But before you go, I wanted to ask if you've ever thought about running for office yourself. I have. It's kind of hard to do this and not be inspired. As I mentioned earlier, I'm originally from Minnesota. And when I was in college, I had this incredible opportunity to do an internship with the state legislature. And after that, it did lead to a temporary job. I worked for the state legislature as a legislative page for about six months. And then I was eventually hired as a consultant to work on higher education issues. And I absolutely loved my time at the legislature. And I feel like I need to give back to my home state. Um, I'm very proud of having gone to a public university in Minnesota 
Go Gophers. That is supported by state dollars. I went to a fantastic K through 12 public education system. And I do feel that I need to give back. So I've often thought that, you know, once I'm, I really love my job right now. I have the best job in the world. But if I want to leave it or when I decide to retire, I am thinking about going back to Minnesota and running for office. Well, I wish you much ongoing success in the future, whichever path you decide to take and whenever. In the meantime, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. My guest today was Barbara or Barb Palmer, and she's a professor of political science at Baldwin-Wallace University. For Ohio Humanities, I'm Rachel Hopkin, and if you have any questions or comments, please email me at rhopkin at ohiohumanities.org. And please note, there's no S on the end of Hopkin. Real Issues, Real Conversations is a production of Ohio Humanities, the state-based partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the National Endowment. This podcast is also made possible in part through the support of the Ohio State University's Humanities Institute. Sokolovsky Music at sokolovskymusic.com provided the opening and closing tracks. To learn more about Ohio Humanities podcasts and other projects and programs, please visit ohiohumanities.org.